the old pilot's plain tales. Après moi, la deluge, part four. This is London. The Air Ministry have just issued the following communicate. In the early hours of this morning, a force of Lancasters of Bomber Command, led by Wing Commander G.P. Gibson, DSO, DFC, attacked with mines the dams of the Myrna and Sauber reservoirs. These control two-thirds of the water storage capacity... It was the night before the big show, and Wing Commander Guy Gibson, squadron commander of 617 Squadron, was heading to bed when he got the bad news. Look here, Guy. I'm awfully sorry, but your dog has been killed. He's just been run over by a car outside the camp. Gibson went back to his room on the eve of this operation with his dog, the squadron mascot, gone. He was alone, looking at the old scratch marks on the door and feeling very depressed. The preparation for this attack had been intense, and this was just another thing to worry about. Gibson was already troubled by intense pain in one of his feet, an attack of gout, but he couldn't let anything distract him now. There was too much at stake. The next day, the 16th of May, recce aircraft overflew the dams and they looked unchanged. Met aircraft had flown well out over the Atlantic to see what weather was coming towards Germany and the reports were also good. The tannoy sounded. All crews of number 617 Squadron report to the briefing room immediately. The crews were to be finally briefed about their targets. They came in hushed, having waited two and a half months to find out about the attack. 133 young men, old-looking and careworn despite their age, but experts, beautifully trained, and each one of them knew his job. Wallace stood and quietly explained about the principles of the bouncing bomb and how it could defeat the enormous dams they were to attack. He told them that it was not going to be easy, and everyone understood what he was trying to say. At the same time, they were relieved to know, at last, what they were going to attack. This was not going to be too bad, they thought. That afternoon, everyone tested their aircraft, and there were tractors driving around carrying the big upkeep mines which were to be fitted to the lanks. The damage done during the dress rehearsals was being rapidly repaired. A new turret here, replacement fins and elevators there. The death of Gibson's dog was kept quiet, as it might be felt as a bad omen but Guy asked Chiefy Powell to bury him outside his office at midnight. It would be just as they were crossing the enemy coast. Then it was time to brief the operation in detail. The AOC gave the boys a bit of a pep talk. You're off on a raid that will do a tremendous amount of damage, he said. It will become historic. The operation had been kept very secret. Not even Fighter Command or their own group headquarters knew they were operating that night. The first wave would consist of nine aircraft, led by Gibson, and they were going to hit the Mona Dam first, and then move on to the Ida and Sorp Dams in turn. The second wave of five would go straight to the Sorp, whilst also acting as a diversion for the main attack. When they got to the Sorp, they were to fire off very lights and generally create a disturbance. The third wave of five would depart two hours later to provide backup. 
The crews had time to study models of the dam and look at their routes in detail until they had committed them to memory. Then it was time to grab a meal at the mess, followed by an hour or two of rest. Gibson was tucking into his eggs and bacon when Dingy cracked the well-known joke. Can I have your egg if you don't come back? Each crewman was allowed to have an egg after a successful operation, and rationing being very strict, they were a scarce commodity. When it came time to climb into the transport to head out, it was a strange scene. The adjutant recorded... It was not like any ordinary operational scene, all the crews on this occasion being aware of the terrific task confronting them. Gibson's favourite Yank, Flight Lieutenant McCarthy, caused quite a disturbance. He arrived at his aircraft to find it had leaking coolant and came dashing back to the only reserve aircraft. He pulled his parachute by mistake and the white silk was streaming all over the ground trailing behind him. With perspiration dripping off his face, good old Mac ran to his aircraft with everyone behind him trying to fix him up. He got off just in time. At exactly the right moment, Hutch fired a red berry light and all the aircraft started up. The AOC walked Gibson to his machine and wished him the best of luck. An RAF photographer came running up and asked to take a picture. Then... Gibson taxied out onto the runway in formation and stood there, waiting to take off. Someone at the control caravan waved a flag. Throttles were opened up and they were off to Germany. Gibson's navigator spoke. Five minutes to go to the Dutch coast, Skip. At only a hundred feet over the water, the Lanx, flying in tight formations, droned on through the night. Gibson replied, Stand by, front gunner. We're going over. OK. All lights off. No talking. Here we go. They were a little off course, but luckily the German gunners were half asleep. Flying as low as they dared, a couple of times Gibson had to pull up sharply when someone spotted trees or high-tension wires. They were following the glinting moonlight of a canal, and as they crossed the German frontier, the nav said... We'll be at the target in one hour and a half. They were the only bombers airborne that night, and if found, they were going to receive the undivided attention of the Luftwaffe. The first casualties came from the second wave and were received before they even crossed the Dutch coast. Jeff Rice flew too low over the sea and hit the surface. Amazingly, he bounced back into the air, but his mind had been torn from the belly of his aircraft and he had lost both outboard engines, so he was forced to turn back. Munro's Lancaster was hit by ground fire which destroyed his radio, so he too had to return. With the anti-aircraft gunners now fully awake, the Canadian Vernon Byers aircraft crossed the coast, but was then hit by flak and shot down. Barlow's crew missed spotting some electricity pylons, and hitting them, he also crashed. From that formation, only the American, Joe McCarthy, survived to cross the Netherlands. Now into Germany, again the dangers of low flying were to claim another Lancaster when Dave Astle was blinded by searchlights and hit high-voltage cables. His aircraft reared up and then plunged into a field, bursting into flames. 
A few seconds later, the mine blew up with a huge explosion. But at last, Gibson had arrived at the dams. The Mona looked squat, heavy and unconquerable in the moonlight, and immediately they were showered by flak from all along its length. He circled his formation around, picking up landmarks. Everyone but Astor was there, and at the same time, Joe McCarthy had begun his diversion attack on the sort. Well, boys, said Gibson, I suppose we had better start the ball rolling. They came in down moon over the hills and dived towards the black water. They could see the towers, sluices, everything. Check height, Terry. Speed control, flight engineer. All guns ready, gunners. Coming up, spam. The bomb aimer. With the spotlights on, the calls came. Down, 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 steady, steady. They were exactly at 60 feet. The flight engineer was working the throttles, keeping the required speed. Spam turned the bomb fuses on and began sighting on the towers. The flak started up, with tracers swirling towards the Lancaster, some bouncing off the water, kicking it up right in front of them. With gritted teeth, Gibson told his engineer, Stand by to pull me out of the seat if I get hit. The aircraft felt very small as it approached the huge dam. Left, a little more left, steady, 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 coming up. Tracer flashed past the windows. The dam was getting very close when... Mine gone. Someone said over the radio, Good show, leader. Nice work. The tail gunner was spraying the dam as they passed over it, and then as they circled around they saw a huge 1,000-foot column of whiteness hanging in the air from where their mine had exploded. The water on the dam looked as if it was being lashed by a gale, and great sheets of it slopped over the wall. Hoppy Hopgood came in next and Gibson noted that German fighters had arrived in the area, but they were flying too low for them. They couldn't get down to them or see them in the darkness. Hoppy descended over the trees and ran across the water, approaching the dam when a long jet of flame began to stream from his wing. He'd been hit. His mine dropped, but it wasn't aimed well, and it bounced over the dam wall and onto the powerhouse below. Hoppy began to climb to try and get his crew out safely, but then there was a livid flash and the wing broke away, the aircraft disintegrating as it fell to the ground in a cascade of flaming debris. Moments later, with a tremendous explosion, the mine went up behind the powerhouse. In the aftermath of this, Mickey Martin had to attack, which he did with calm efficiency, and again there was a giant explosion that spewed water high into the air, but still the dam stood, although Gibson felt sure it had shifted back a bit. Mickey had been hit and lost a lot of petrol from one wing, but he seemed okay for the moment. Now it was Mervyn Young's turn, and whilst he lined up, Gibson flew his aircraft across the dam, drawing the flak away and hosing the towers with machine-gun fire. Mervyn's mine hit exactly in the right spot, and he was convinced the dam had gone, but when the water settled, it was still standing, unbroken. Back in the operations room at Scampton, 
Barnes Wallace sat with his head in his hands. The Air Officer Commanding and the Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command were pacing up and down, and with each code word that came in signalling a successful drop, they hoped for the best, but as more and more mines hit without a breach, Barnes' head drooped lower and lower. Dave Maltby made the next attack, and again the mine worked perfectly, filling the air with spray until it became hard to see what was happening below. Gibson called in the next aircraft, but then someone shouted, I think she's gone! I think she's gone! We came down for a closer look, said Gibson, and there was a huge breach in the dam some hundred yards across, and water was gushing out and rolling into the Ruhr Valley towards the industrial centres of the Third Reich. Now it was all quiet, except for the roar of the water which steamed and hissed its way out of the reservoir through the massive breach. The crews began to shout and scream and act like madmen over the radio, for this was a tremendous sight, a sight which probably no man will ever see again. The whole valley was beginning to fill with fog from the steam of the gushing water, and down in the foggy valley we saw cars speeding along the roads in front of this great wave of water which was chasing them until their headlights disappeared as the water overtook them, wave by wave, the colour of the lights underneath of the water changing from blue to green to purple. The floods raced on, carrying everything with them as they went. Viaducts, railways, bridges, anything that stood in their path. The code word for a successful breach of the Mona was sent, and the exhilaration and relief that the crews felt was reflected by great excitement in the operations room as Barnes-Wallace jumped up and danced around. After a few minutes, Gibson took five of his formation and set course for the Ida. Fog was forming, and this was going to be the hardest dam to attack because of the terrain. Time was also getting short as dawn was approaching. Again and again the Lancasters attacked, many times aborting their approach, as it was devilishly difficult getting down from over the high hills to the surface of the water in time. Henry Maudslay's mine hit the dam parapet, and exploded beneath him. The aircraft disappeared, and everyone thought the worst. In fact, although badly damaged, they had set off for Scampton, only to be shot down a while later by Flack from the Rhine town of Emmerich. Dave Shannon made a successful attack, and then, with the final bomb that they had, the Australian, Les Knight, made a perfect attack and his mind shook the base of the dam. Then, as if a giant hand had punched a hole through cardboard, the whole thing collapsed, and a great mass of water began running down the valley into the castle. Digger was very excited, and kept his radio transmitter on by mistake for quite some time. His crew's joyous exclamations were something to be heard, but not repeated. Attacks went ahead on the Sorp Dam, but by its nature it was going to be a difficult job. The bombs cracked but failed to breach the dam. On the return flight, one more Lancaster was lost, 
that of Dingy Young, who was hit by flak crossing the Dutch coast, and he crashed into the North Sea. This time his habit of returning home in a dinghy was to fail, as all on board perished. Of the nineteen aircraft dispatched, only eleven returned, carrying seventy-seven men from the initial one hundred and thirty-three who took off. Fifty-three men died on Operation Chastise, with three surviving by a miracle only to be taken as prisoners of war. Thirteen of those killed were members of the Royal Canadian Air Force, and two belonged to the Royal Australian Air Force. Of the survivors, thirty-four were decorated at Buckingham Palace on the 22nd of June, with Gibson awarded the Victoria Cross. There were five distinguished service orders, ten distinguished flying crosses and four bars, two conspicuous gallantry medals, eleven distinguished flying medals and one bar. The raid received enormous publicity at a time when British morale was at a low point, but some believed that it was oversold and its achievements exaggerated. Even Bomber Harris wrote later, I've seen nothing to show that the effort was worthwhile except as a spectacular operation. Time has, however, thrown up a wealth of information about the impact the attack made. The Dambusters raid, referred to by the Germans as the Mona Catastrophe, was, according to Albert Speer, a disaster for us for a number of months, and resulted in a 400,000 tonne drop in coal production in May 1943 alone. German reports describe considerable losses of production caused by the lack of water and that many shaft mines, coking plants, smelting works, power stations, fuel plants and armament factories were shut down. The fact that a titanic effort had to be made to repair this damage shows how high a priority the dams were and it meant resources were shifted from elsewhere. Nowhere was this costlier to the Third Reich than on the beaches of Normandy. Hitler had ordered the construction of massive networks of defence against an Allied invasion, but thousands of workers who should have been toiling in France were now being redirected to the Ruhr to repair the dams. At the time, no raid mounted by so few aircraft had caused such extensive material damage. There's no doubt that the story of the Lancasters of 617 Squadron is utterly remarkable for so many reasons, and the skill and bravery of the crews who flew that night is undiminished by time.
If you enjoyed this story, please leave a review at wherever you get your podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.